Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, everyone. I'm Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I want to welcome all of you joining this afternoon. The focus of today's talk is going to be lessons for future collaboration in global health. We are delighted to have three experts, all of whom are members of the National Committee family. Our two speakers, Peggy Hamburg and Winnie Yip, who will be introduced by our moderator, are both members of the National Committee's Track to Healthcare Dialogue. And our moderator today, Joan Kaufman, is a longtime friend of the committee's. She will introduce the speakers and run the show from now on, but just let me say a word about Joan. Her career has been a mix of China and public health since 1980, initially with the United Nations and then with the Ford Foundation, which is when we first came to know Joan. We are delighted that we've stayed in touch with her over the years and that we're now working closely with her in her new position as Senior Director for Academic Programs for Schwarzman Scholars. And she's also on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. So thank you in advance. Um, Winnie and Peggy and Joan for what we know is going to be a really interesting and informative program. Well, thank you for the introduction, Jan. And I have indeed been a friend of the National Committee for a very, very long time. Um, and I'm very happy to be invited to moderate today with uh, two people I've also known uh, in my professional career, Peggy Hamburg and Winnie Yip. The arrival of the coronavirus in both China and the U.S. has really put further strain on an already frayed bilateral relationship. Yet if the world is to deal with this pandemic and prepare for future health and other crises, it is essential that our two nations really work together on global preparedness and on finding the vaccines, therapeutics, and ensuring that the global supply chain for personal protective equipment and other equipment and supplies really works. Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, recently opened a talk on the global pandemic with a comment that there is a gap between global challenges and global arrangements. This is certainly true in the global health world and particularly true in our strained relationship with China. So before I introduce our two fabulous speakers today, I'd like to just give you all a very quick rundown of the flow of our program this afternoon. First, each of our speakers will give a 10-minute talk, and then we'll have a conversation on how our countries can work together to defeat COVID-19. We'll leave the last 20 minutes for questions from our audience. I'm really fortunate to be joined by two people who can really share their wisdom and perspectives from long careers working in global health and China to help us understand opportunities for a path forward from this very troubling moment in both global health and the U.S.-China relationship. Peggy Hamburg is an internationally recognized leader in public health and medicine with a career of public service. She's currently the Foreign Secretary of the National Academy of Medicine and was former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, serving six years during the Obama administration. She was also the former health commissioner of New York, a job she must surely be grateful not to be in at the present moment. 
She's held numerous other senior positions in government and has just stepped down as the president and chair of the most prestigious science organization in the world, the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, which publishes Science Magazine. Dr. Hamburg is a medical doctor. So welcome, Peggy. Thank you. Winnie is a professor of global health policy and economics in the Department of Global Health and Population at the T.C. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard, where I did my own doctorate many years ago. She's one of the world's leading experts on China's healthcare system and its reform in the last two decades. She leads the school-wide China Health Partnership at T.H. Chan and has served as an advisor to both the World Bank and WHO and is deeply respected and welcomed by China's own health authorities for her advice and wisdom on their own health system challenges. In fact, recently her work for the World Bank uh, included the Healthy China Study, which was incorporated into China's own next five-year plan. So she's a health economist by training. And as Jan mentioned, they're both members of the National Committee's Track 2 Dialogue on Healthcare. So each of our uh, speakers will open our event today with 10 minutes of comments before we move to facilitated discussion and then Q&A. So let's start with you, Peggy. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be part of uh, this afternoon session and to be uh, speaking um, with Winnie, who I have long admired, and her work has been such a contribution. And I know that we have a very distinguished audience. I'm sorry that we have to interact through Zoom, but that is part of our new reality. Um, and I do want to um, make sure we have plenty of time to engage, even at a distance, in terms of uh, question, answers, and discussion. I'm going to obviously speak from the perspective of someone who has spent a career uh, working in science, medicine, and public health, and also working often at that precarious interface between uh, those disciplines and the practice of politics. We really have an opportunity through COVID-19 and through the broader set of issues that surround science collaboration and global health collaboration with China to, to really identify critical areas of work that has occurred and opportunities going forward. This is a time of considerable tension, as we all recognize, between our two countries. But I think that in many ways, science, medicine, and public health provide an important bridge uh, a way of communicating, collaborating, and, and establishing and maintaining important relationships of trust, collaboration, and mutual confidence that are valuable to both our nations and frankly to the world. So with respect to uh, where we are and where we've been and where we're going in the context of COVID-19, I think it's important to say, number one, that there's a long history of collaboration between U.S. Um, uh, science and, and, and China. Much of that has been in the form of Chinese students uh, and trainees and, and young career professionals spending time in, in our labs and in our uh, research and, and care institutions and then going back to China but maintaining working relationships and collaboration. Also, in the aftermath of SARS, which was an important emergence of an earlier coronavirus, quite similar to, but distinct from the, the SARS virus that we're, the coronavirus we're dealing with now, 
there was a, a considerable engagement between public health and uh, in China and public health in the US and the building up of the Chinese CDC, which uh, received a lot of technical assistance and also uh, seconded personnel from the US CDC as they built up this new entity, uh, which in many ways is, is modeled after our, our uh, Centers for Disease Control and performs obviously a crucial role for routine public health and in this crisis. And similarly, uh, the US FDA has worked closely uh, over the last uh, decade or so to try to strengthen working relationships um, and to, to really uh, create a set of, of shared activities that reflect shared concerns in both of our countries and also our mutual interdependence in a globalized world. As we are struggling to deal with COVID-19, obviously it emerged in China and really first came to the attention of, of most people in the world and in the United States, uh, pretty much as the new year began. China sits in a very special position of having, you know, sort of led in terms of response, been the first to identify this new virus, post its genome very early, which enabled scientific work to develop new drugs, vaccines, and diagnostics to move forward very swiftly, and also to begin to put in place public health measures to uh, contain and control uh, the unfolding epidemic. And, and now as the center of gravity, the center of the epidemic has shifted, the virus has marched relentlessly um, across Europe and now the US is the epicenter. And sad to say that I believe today we crossed the 1 million mark in terms of cases in the United States. Uh, we have a lot to learn from China and a lot of opportunity to collaborate. And in turn, China, as this is going to be an ongoing concern, uh, has the opportunity for, to learn from us as well, both our successes and our, and our failures. Critical areas obviously involve understanding the nature of the virus itself. Um, where did it emerge from? How is it evolving and, and mutating? Um, still critical unanswered questions about uh, how the virus causes disease and the manifestations of disease, uh, how long is the incubation period, the surprising discovery of asymptomatic spreaders of disease, which is a little bit different in its presentation than with most other viruses uh, that we know, and how does it stimulate an immune response and the nature of that immune response. Critical issues in the public health uh, surveillance and control area that we are, are really um, uh, all grappling with in, in whatever region of this country we live in and around the world in terms of the roles of social distancing, um, the, the impacts of more uh, uh, limitations in, 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 in travel, et cetera. How do you use testing, contact tracing, isolation of infected individuals and quarantine of those exposed to enable you to better understand the contours of the epidemic in your region or your country and how do you decide when you can open up and begin to loosen restrictions and, and the sort of dance involved in terms of loosening, monitoring, and maybe putting back in place restrictions. Critical issues in the realm of science, 
beyond just understanding the nature of the virus, but also the development of diagnostics, drugs, and vaccines. And there is a lot of work going on now in terms of therapeutics and vaccine development in, in both the US and China and more internationally. And there's really been quite a lot of international collaboration, although more constrained than it probably would have been if the political environment wasn't quite as, as tense at, at the moment. And I think the opportunities to build on the existing regulatory collaboration that had been developed, um, I'm happy to say largely under my tenure as FDA commissioner in terms of trying to work together, trying to align um, some of our approaches to problems and importantly, trying to protect the integrity of supply chains since many components of medical products used in the United States actually come from China, including uh, over 80% of the active pharmaceutical ingredients used in drugs consumed here in this country. So a lot of interdependence, a lot of ongoing work, a lot of opportunities for collaboration. And all of this, I think, will be very important as we define the path going forward for stronger systems of public health and pandemic uh, preparedness and response. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peggy. That was a great opening statement. And now, Winnie, we'd love to hear uh, your comments. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to um, speak on the same panel as Peggy and Joan, whom I have known since I started working at Harvard 1994. So good to be uh, here with both of you and also all the audience that I'm seeing, but we are seeing you uh, in our head. Um, so, I think that the title U.S.-China collaboration, um, when we think about China or U.S., what are we thinking about, right? Sometimes we talk about China as if it is one homogeneous thing, but um, I think collaboration happens at many levels. Um, there are collaborations with the government, there are collaborations with scientists, there are collaboration with academics, there are collaboration with practitioners like hospital managers. And, and I think that at this point that collaboration with China takes on different mode and different level of sensitivity. And, and I think that when we think when we talk about China-US collaboration, we should be a little bit more nuanced. So that's sort of um, one of my best my, my uh, basic point to start with. The, I think coronavirus has propelled us to examine some of the fundamental issues that probably have been ongoing, but we sort of like take it as given and don't give it enough attention until this hit and become a crisis. The first point is that I think both the US and China need to understand that when there is a virus, no virus is going to stay in their home anymore because the economy is so much more interconnected, people travel. And so in a way it is probably more just between US-China collaboration, but in this global problem, what role should the US and China should be playing in a way that would help reduce the catastrophe that is caused by the virus. And I think in the case of this virus, both US-China probably missed the early window, which is the most important window. Because going forward, what we want to prevent is, we want to prevent seeing another Wuhan. We want to prevent seeing another New York. 
And so what are the lessons that each country can learn from each other or learn together on what could have been done better, more effectively in the first phase for preventing the cases to go into the exponential growth situation. Because once it gets into exponential growth, in a way, our hands are tied. And in the case of China, um, we know that by now, the data show that the first handful of cases appear around December 8th or so. By December 31st, the national government has informed WHO, and January 7th, the first genome was identified. January 12th, it was shared. But if you look at China, major policy wasn't introduced until January 23rd. That's the watershed. And then once after that, there are many, many, many effective non-pharmaceutical interventions that we talk about lockdown, building a isolation hospital, very stringent um, travel restriction, even within communities. But what could have been done differently before that period of time and why there's a strong, uh, long lack of, the, uh, of action? And similarly to the U.S., a lot of people say that, I mean, given that China has started this in January, the U.S. has two months of a hat. But again, why, why is so little being done to prevent happening another, preventing another Wuhan happening in, in, in the U.S.? Um, now, in the case of China after SARS, actually China has built an electronic reporting system so that when there is another infection, whenever there is an infection case, it is actually reported electronically in real time from wherever that it happens all the way to national CDC. So that should have been done on a real time basis. And is there something that the U.S. can learn and can more be done so that the reporting can actually be turned into action? I think that in, in terms of learning about that period of time, it's not so much about one country has done all the right thing and the other country should learn, but it's more about the two countries working together as a mirror to reflect on each other's pros and cons and be more prepared for the next wave. The second point I want to point out about, there is striking similarities between China and US, in fact, in terms of its healthcare system. I think science is one important pillar um, for combating any virus or any pandemic outbreak in the future. The other pillar is actually the healthcare system itself. Both the U.S. and China, surprisingly, have a very similar healthcare system in the sense that both of them are very weak in primary healthcare. And we all know that primary healthcare, if they're strong, they can play very significant roles in screening, in testing, if the tests are available, in contact tracing, in monitoring quarantine, in education. Both countries' primary health care are not playing this role. And you see that in both countries, the hospitals are already overstretched. And then when there's a surge of cases, the hospital system in both countries actually have collapsed pretty much in the important uh, outbreak area. 
So fundamentally, what could the two countries learn from each other to revamp its healthcare system so that it can be stronger to prevent the future? It may not be able to deal with today's problem, but I think that it is a little bit difficult to think about what one can learn by just looking at the short-term responses. But to what extent we can take this opportunity to learn from each other or to work with each other to build a stronger system for the future. And, and I'm sure you have seen and heard that from the data that we have now, the early cases of infection in Wuhan, 40% of them are due to people going to the hospital for minor health problems that, that are not even COVID ID. They're just simple flu and cough symptoms, but then they got infected then. Now, in response to that, I think now both countries is calling on telehealth as a way to deal with the cases that are non-severe or extreme. And in particular, with staying at home, social distancing, um, both countries have now called on using telehealth. The Chinese system was able to roll that out at a much larger, faster scale. And in fact, um, it is actually a combination of both um, private innovation and also government activities. Government actually expedited um, giving licenses for a number of public hospitals to offer telehealth and for the private enterprises for many, for many weeks, they actually call on physicians to volunteer on their platform to provide free care. And in China, because of the uh, popularity of using WeChat and the phone, all these are actually available on the phone, whereas in the US it's not as um, widely uh, applied as yet. So, and, and, and I was impressed in the way that the Chinese also respond so very quickly to not just use it as consultation, but also creating fever chatbot, because that's also a way for them to do screening and detecting uh, patients who might be um, cases that uh, should be given tests, and then they provide information for where people can go to get tests. They also immediately provide an additional app, which would actually help people to ask questions to deal with their anxiety. And you can imagine that during that period of time, there's so much fear and anxiety. So, so there is a lot to be learned on how quickly one can respond to the needs of the population because ultimately is how are we able to respond to the need of the patient and the population. But I think as, as uh, the situation quiet down, there is much to be learned between the two countries in terms of if, we, if telehealth is going to remain the new normal for healthcare delivery. What are the new standards? What are the rules of the games that need to be put in so that it would actually be providing high quality and safe care for people as well? So it's not just a firefighting engine, but it can remain as something that is stable and sustainable. Um, I want to just um, also reflect a little bit on having worked in China for about 25 years now. I think that working with China is different now. I remember that uh, when I first started working with China, definitely the U.S.-China relationship, even in academic, in terms of knowledge, is one of the U.S. go and teach China. 
But I think now it's one relationship of which we're equal partners. We are equal partners that work together to solve some common problem. And I think that any US-China collaboration have to accept this new kind of relationship and have to also build upon trusting relation. Otherwise, I don't think it will be able to move very far. And in the area of health, um, I think the metrics to measure whether our collaboration is productive or successive is the benefits that we produce for each country's people. It's not so much what we produce for ourselves and um, to what extent that benefits is also um, being um, applied to the global world beyond US and China as well. So thank you very much. I look forward to interacting with both of you and also the audience. Great, well, that's a fabulous segue into the first question I'm going to ask, which is really that US and China are both, you know, the two global science and technology powerhouses. Um, and really what happens in China and the US and the science space has huge implications for the world. The enormous amount of investment in science and technology, um, you know, really uh, needs to be shared globally. Um, and China, of course, has major capabilities in everything from AI technologies with applications to healthcare to drug development, biotech, and genomics. As you mentioned, they shared the genome for the, um, the virus so quickly with the world, and that's become the basis for the development of um, you know, over 70 vaccines and 13 trials right now, as well as other therapeutics. So, um, you know, and they're applying AI in other areas like contact tracing and hotspot identification. You mentioned the telemedicine and the digital apps, um, robotics and drones for deliveries. So, and a lot of this is happening in the business world, but I guess I would ask Peggy, you know, um, what, are, what are they doing that can, we should be doing in terms of applying those technologies to the pandemic response in the U.S.? And how can we get past some of our own privacy concerns in this emergency to make some of the, um, you know, the AI applications effective? And what other, you know, what else is China doing in the science space that we're not doing that we ought to be collaborating on? Um, for not only our own benefit, for the benefit of the world. So I'll start with you, Peggy. Yeah, the, you've got a lot of different questions embedded <laughs> there. But I think, you know, that certainly uh, we do need to be thinking about how to use a variety of digital and information technology tools to enhance some of our activities. One critical area that you mentioned uh, involves our, our ability some of the public health surveillance uh, that we need to do, being able to monitor various kinds of, of data sources to be able to detect where there might be emerging hotspots. Um, you know, there are, there are strategies, for example, where you can monitor um, people's queries about um, symptoms of COVID-19, or uh, you can monitor um, movements of, of people and contacts that they've, they've had to help uh, with contact tracing. Uh, you can monitor people that you know have been exposed to someone who's infected but may not be sick by having them use digital tools to monitor their 
temperature and how they feel and feed it back into databases, et cetera. So there are many different levels, ways that we can be using digital tools um, and advanced technologies more effectively. In terms of you know, using true you know, sort of artificial intelligence, um, machine learning uh, kinds of applications as well, uh, China certainly has been using those kinds of strategies very effectively with respect to drug development and trying to look for you know, various kinds of, of, of targets for drug development in a lot of different arenas. I don't know if they're doing that in, in COVID-19 right now, um, but that is one area. Uh, also, being able to use big data kinds of strategies once we have new products, importantly vaccines in the marketplace to be able to monitor in an ongoing way, large databases through electronic health records and, and maybe other kinds of, of reporting, uh, whether there are emerging concerns about safety or efficacy um, or drill down deeper into to really being able to study, and China is uniquely positioned because of their size, being able to study whether it's using a drug or with, with other medical products, subpopulations that seem to be responding differently, either because of genetic factors or environmental exposures or maybe other medical complications. But there, there are many ways that we can think about um, applying digital tools in new ways that have shown some utility in response to this current unfolding epidemic, but also that we know about in other ways. And of course, genomics is something that, that China has you know, really um, developed great strengths in, in terms of, of capacities and increasingly applications. And, and that capability has already demonstrated its essential role in accelerating important science to develop the diagnostics drugs and vaccines that we need. Um, it, it is quite extraordinary. I think for all of us that recognize that some of this evolving science is, is really our path forward, it seems very slow. But in terms of the history of medical product development, we're moving in some arenas at warp speed. And that is you know, largely due to the advances in our ability to really drill down at the most basic levels because of the tools of, of genomics and other aspects of molecular uh, science today. Mm. Great, great. So um, I'm gonna just turn to Winnie now for the next question and um, ask you, um, you know, you have uh, written extensively on China's health reform uh, the, since, you know, the around 2008, and in fact, just did a fabulous review of it in The Lancet just a year ago, and um, including the new comprehensive insurance scheme. How well did that play out during the pandemic, and what worked and didn't work in terms of access and care? What can we learn from China in terms of its new universal um, health access you know, plan, program that it's rolling out right now? Um, you know, you've got, you probably have a bird's eye view on that from all the work you've done over the last, uh, you know, couple of decades on that. So it'd be really great to hear your observations on that. 
I think one major accomplishment that China um, had in the last 10 years is that it rolled out a public health insurance program that now covers 96% of the population. And in a crisis like this, it is very helpful for people to know that their care actually being covered. So financial barrier is not an issue or concern. Um, I mean, in the U.S., we're still seeing people who are not able to get care covered. And, and this is sort of showing up in the disparity that we're seeing in um, being the infection rate and also the death rate between um, the different racial um, disparity uh, on the racial disparity in the U.S., etc. So, so the fact that China is able to provide universal health insurance coverage for everyone does reduce the financial barrier significantly to get to care. And also, very quickly, the Chinese government has also mandated that all co-payments for COVID-19 patients have to be waived. And they would be paid by insurance. Um, so that's a further step that was being introduced. And when telemedicine becomes the dominant um, care um, platform during COVID-19 for the non-COVID-19 patients, then there are also policies to also pay for that as well, which is what Medicare here does, but then all the other private insurance <laughs> have very different responses to it. So from an equity perspective, I think there's much to be learned from the US. Um, and I think that's very similar to the Medicare um, for all sort of debate that is happening in the US. But I have, a, as I have alluded earlier, I think China did wonderfully in providing um, a universal health insurance program, but what it is actually not making much progress is, is delivery system, as I have said that. It is a very hospital-centric system that focuses on curative care and doesn't give enough attention to population-based prevention, health promotion. And I think it becomes quite obvious in this outbreak where is the where public health and prevention screening management actually is really critical for um, preventing the disease to spread at a large scale. Um, so, so, so right now China is um, pushing very aggressively, uh, reforming its delivery system to be more primary care based and also integrated delivery. This is an area where China and US can learn from each other. If you think about what the US delivery system is trying to change, when you think about the ACO effort and all of that, it is also trying to change the delivery system to something much more prevention and management strong. Uh, uh, integrated delivery. So it's not an area that either one of the countries is doing particularly well or not, but much to be learned if they can walk the journey together and be a mirror to each other and learn along the way. Great. Well, thank you very, very much for that, uh, that um, answer. And I'm going to turn now to Peggy with a question about uh, vaccines.
um, and other therapeutics. You know, to get to the other side of this epidemic and get us all back to work, we're going to need a vaccine, reliable antibody testing, and some therapeutics. Um, so, you know, could you just enlighten us kind of where we are? Um, you know, as you mentioned, um, you know, China sharing the genome with us and the whole, all their advances in genomics, uh, you know, has led to kind of a lightning speed with which we've been able to apply that knowledge to the development of vaccines and, you know, with quite a few in, in trials right now, including one in China, as far as I understand, and this very promising candidate from Oxford. So I guess the big question here is, you know, how long do you think it will be till we have a vaccine and what obstacles might we face um, if if the vaccine and other therapeutics emerge from China. And this is where I think your own experience with um, you know, the Food and Drug Administration and the regulatory environment and um, you know, how will that play out in the geopolitics of the US-China relationship right now. So uh, be wonderful to hear your insights and thoughts okay. on that one. Well, again, another uh, Complex. set of questions embedded in one. <laughs> um, I mean, first, let me step back and say that it's, it, it has been an extraordinarily productive area already in terms of, of um, the, the programs that are being developed to produce candidate vaccines um, against this novel coronavirus. Uh, there are now, you know, well over 70 different candidate vaccines in formal development and more potential candidates that are, are, are being looked at, but they, they, and they're being developed by companies, big and small, you know, traditional vaccine developers and, and, you know, small biotechs and in many, many parts of the world. Um, and a lot of collaboration between uh, academic uh, researchers and and companies as well. There are about seven broad categories of different vaccine types, some of which are very traditional, the kinds of vaccines that have been being made for years um, using the same kinds of strategies and approaches, and then some very novel approaches and new platforms. So we're, number one, going to learn a lot about different vaccine strategies. And, you know, I think from this pool of candidates, we are likely to have um, at least one and likely more vaccines that demonstrate sufficient safety and efficacy against this uh, new coronavirus to actually become available for broad use. Um, as you noted, there is one vaccine in, in China that's already now gone into clinical human studies, um, and there are a couple of others as well. And, you know, it is a, in many ways, it's a very competitive field, but in a way, it's, 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 it's a race. But I think everybody recognizes that as a global community, we need to find a vaccine and we need not only to find a vaccine, but we have to make sure that it's available in sufficient quantities that can actually be distributed to people around the world. Because as we have learned watching um, this, this new epidemic march its way around the globe, viruses know no borders and that uh, outbreak, even in a remote part of the world one day can be in our backyard the next. And so 
we all actually, as various nations around the world, have a very vested interest in making sure that there is global disease control and vaccines are our best protection. But I think we recognize that the challenges are huge. Making vaccines are a risky business, um, partly because you, you have to be able to understand the virus, understand the human immune response, and find a strategy where you can um, stimulate a person's immune system to make the right protective antibodies against the virus. And sometimes it, that can be difficult. We still, despite great science, haven't been able to come up with an uh, effective vaccine against HIV. Um, but I think there's a lot of reason to think that it will work with coronavirus. Secondly, though, you have to really make sure vaccines are safe. And this is part of, of why it, 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 it can't be as swift as some people like. But you're giving a vaccine to people that are healthy in order to protect them from a disease. It's not mm -hmm. that you're treating an acute disease. So safety uh, really matters. And then we're going to be manufacturing on a scale that's unheard of um, in terms of trying to make vaccine really, really quickly for billions of people around the globe. So already efforts are underway without any candidate vaccine having re reached any level of advanced uh, testing. We're starting to think about how to build the manufacturing capability. And in this context, as we've seen in other serious disease outbreaks, and maybe particularly in the, the modern world we live in, there are concerns that nationalistic tendencies will step out in front and that countries will try to take control of supplies of vaccine for their own countries. And particularly if that vaccine is manufactured within your own borders. And I think people already now are trying to develop a global governance mechanism and commitments for global sharing before we know whose vaccine or vaccines are going to be the winners um, because we really do, I think, as a global community concerned about global health, want to try to do everything we can to protect against that and ensure that the vaccine can be distributed in a, a fair, equitable, and public health-driven manner. Well, I just, I'm forced to ask a small follow-up question there, which is, uh, you know, by defunding the WHO, do we put ourselves at a disadvantage in terms of uh, participating in the global governance discussions, uh, you know, about sharing, about access, and other, other dimensions that you just uh, so rightly raised? Well, it's such an important question, and, it's, and it is a very unfortunate circumstance because I think we are actually undermining our own best interests with a short-sighted, politically motivated decision. WHO sits in a very unique and essential place in terms of public health around the world, and they are playing an important role in coordinating many aspects of medical product um, development testing and ultimately uh, distribution, and also a very pivotal role in terms of helping to coordinate global disease surveillance, information sharing, um, providing uh, guidance and recommendations to countries around the world. Uh, so, you know, I think that if, if WHO didn't exist, we would want to be creating such an entity. It does exist. It's been chronically underfunded. I think this is 
um, an institution that we should all care about and help to support, but particularly in the midst of a global pandemic and one of this severity with so many uncertainties and unresolved issues, pulling out is, is just so short-sighted and reckless. But even more broadly, the U.S. is not stepping up to the plate in the way that I think it should mm -hmm. in supporting other aspects of the global response. And certainly vaccines is one. There's an organization, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, which has been at the forefront of efforts to support um, COVID-19 vaccine uh, development. It's supported by many countries around the world and, and philanthropies. Uh, the U.S., still the richest country in the world, has not um, come forward to help support this important international vaccine development uh, entity, which is specifically um, committed to developing uh, vaccines against pathogens of pandemic potential. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to turn my last prepared question to Winnie uh, before we open it up to some audience Q&A. Um, so, Winnie, um, you know, I just read the, the Harvard Crimson's uh, article on the end of the Harvard century, which is sort of circulating around the web, especially, I guess, to people uh, with, you know, Harvard history. And, um, you know, you personally and the School of Public Health um, in particular, have had a very, very long history of academic collaboration with China on public health. So, you know, based on your own experience, you know, where do you think, uh, you know, what channels are open for academic collaboration um, uh, related to the pandemic? And, um, you know, where do you think will be the most fruitful areas uh, with interest on both sides for U.S.-China academic cooperation, especially on next steps for the global responses to the pandemic. I think that, um, as I alluded earlier, that collaboration now is different from collaboration 25 years ago. So it's not so much about um, the U.S. or Harvard going to teach the Chinese. It is about working together to find a solution for um, uh, problems that we're confronting. And I think that from our experience, um, I can only really speak uh, for my own experience or at least our collaboration, um, it's, uh, there's still many, many doors that are open. Many Chinese are still very open and welcome collaboration. And for them, it is about learning knowledge. I don't think that people are in the mode of thinking that you provide me a solution or I provide you with a solution that can immediately transplant to another country. But it is more about learning together. So, so I think that um, in the areas of um, how do you um, take the lessons of this COVID-19 outbreak, we are working with um, different universities, including those in Wuhan, to try to examine what are the policies that could have been done and decisions that could have, could have been done better if there is another outbreak in the future. Um, what are the data that needs to be created that would allow them to be able to respond better? What kind of training is necessary for frontline and for researchers to be able to answer some of the questions that is being unanswered? So, so I think it is on areas that are along the line of learning with each other 
and but with an attitude of it is not about finding fault it is about we just want to um get a a, a more evidence-based um knowledge so that we can prevent something like that in the future from happening um, all those are very fruitful. Data sharing is different from before. I mean, before we can, Joan, you know, we can collaborate and then bring a data set out. But now most of the time we have to leave the data set in China, which means that training a team of our own collaborator in China, whom we have a trusting relationship to do the work together, become very important. And, and I think that the appetite for training and for um, learning is still there. And that's why I started this conversation by saying, when we say China, there are many bits of China. And remember in particular, not every part of China is Beijing and Shanghai that is very developed. Like the places that you and I work in, Yunnan, Guizhou, Ningxia, there's huge need to want to upgrade their level of capacity and knowledge to respond to the needs. And um, I've always found that if we go in working with academics or even the government, with the goal and the measurement is, are we producing product, research product or training product that is for improving people's life? that always is a very good starting point. We have to take our own ego away <laughs> and put it into, we are here working for the people's benefit. Here, here, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Well, I'm gonna now go to some of the Q and A uh, from the, the chat group here, the Q and A uh, list. And I'm gonna start with our very own Steve Orleans, who is the president of the National Committee, uh, who's asked about um, CDC's presence in China, which was reduced from eight US assignees and 39 local employees in 2017 to three U.S. assignees and 11 local employees in 2019. Um, the, res the resident epidemiologist position was ended last summer. So his question is really, how did this influence China's ability to deal with the virus and America's ability to understand what was coming? What lessons should be learned from this? So, um, you know, I'll ask both of you, I think you both are going to have different perspectives on this. So why don't we start with you, Winnie, and, um, you know, we have quite a few questions, so let's try to be brief so we can get as many in as possible. Um, uh, let's Peggy speak on the number of uh, U.S. Uh, scientists um, in, in China, but, I mean, since SARS, if you look at um, CDC in China, its uh, capacity to do scientific research and discovery actually has improved tremendously. But I think this outbreak demonstrated that the CDC system and the public health system which is responsible more for implementing changes is fragmented. So there's a gap in between those two. It's not exactly Steve's question, but I think CDC over time has built itself to become a scientific discovery um, unit. And in fact, the promotion of CDC employees uh, based on how many papers you have published and rather than um, the actual public health work. And I think there is a gap between those two functions. I'll jump in. Um, you know, it's interesting because I did hear people griping about 
why are all the Chinese CDC people publishing papers when they should be controlling the outbreak? But I didn't realize <laughs> that exactly the context, but, uh, but that, was, that was a concern. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm answering the question from a, a US-centric lens, mm -hmm. which is that I, I do think it, it, it was very, very important having that um, engagement of, of US public health experts in, in China. I think it, it, it enabled us to build some of those important bridging relationships that I was talking about. I think it, it, it contributed to CDC being able to, I mean, to China being able to build up its public health uh, capacity in, in some very impressive ways, you know, really following on um, the tragedy of SARS. Um, but it, it was very useful for our, our scientists and public health people, both because I think it's very useful for us to get out of our own country and work in other countries. And CDC has had a tradition of sending people to, to different parts of the world and also welcoming um, scientists from other parts of the world to, to work at CDC and other public health agencies the same. But I think that, that it is also important in terms of creating an atmosphere of greater openness. And, and I think that that has been a continuing problem in our relationship with China in important areas of, of public health um, and some domains of, of science. And it has created a problem that is persisting that, that China wasn't fully transparent as this outbreak began. I think everybody initially thought this is gonna be different, that China learned from SARS where they um, did not initially share information about an unusual uh, cluster of respiratory disease that was worrisome but um, wasn't clearly defined and they waited too long and with that came very negative consequences. We all, I think, wanted to believe it was gonna be different this time and it has been, um, you know, disturbing to realize that there was important information that wasn't shared early on. And of course you wonder what difference could that have made. Now, this is obviously not a time to go back and point fingers, um, but I do think that part of the unfortunate fact of, of decreasing the working relationship and the, the sharing of people and communication makes it harder to, to create that climate of expectation of, of openness, um, which I think, you know, has unfortunately harmed us all. Mm -hmm. well, I would Can I just add a little bit here also is, I think we also have to remind that ourselves that, I mean, when, I mean, it's a new virus, which means that we are really trying to make decisions while we're learning and to be able to have information and lessons shared in such a seamless way is so important. I think a commentator said this is like flying an airplane that we're building and while we're flying. And and so had to have these fragmentation across the countries and not being the having the, the flow of information is so damaging to human lives. I would also say that I think, you know, having the CDC, the, of course, the China CDC and the U.S. CDC staff seconded there were two separate agencies. And I'm not sure that, uh, you know, that 
even had they been there, they would have had access to Wuhan if the local authorities were not being transparent about what was going on in the early weeks of the of January. Um, you know, I do think, of course, it's important to have CDC people on the ground, especially from the uh, Epidemiology Intelligence Service, who do that wonderful, you know, um, kind of kind of uh, emergency assessment and, um, you know, globally uh, on pandemics and emerging infectious diseases. Um, but I'm not sure, honestly, it would have made a huge difference in this particular case if the local government wasn't being transparent. And, and, and I agree with you, Peggy, it was exactly the same with SARS. And that was, should have been a lesson learned that wasn't a lesson learned, no matter how good the surveillance system was. And in fact, it was very good, uh, as Winnie pointed out with the real-time reporting of uh, cases to the uh, national level. Um, you know, it couldn't, um, pardon the expression, trump local politics. So just my two cents on that yeah, particular yeah, one. Good points, very yeah. good points. Yeah, so let me just um, uh, go to some other questions here. We have um, a question that was submitted in advance. Um, how much of an effect, if any, does the spate of politically motivated anti-China rhetoric have on efforts to promote scientific collaboration? And that's from Howard Spendelo at Georgetown University's History Department. Personally, I think it's very harmful. I'm just gonna jump in mm -hmm. and it began, you know, before, COVID-19, um, certainly in terms of, of an increasingly uh, chilling environment around um, collaborative work, US-China in the scientific domain, uh, Chinese scientists working here in the United States, or US scientists going over to work in China, and um, a defunding of, of certain projects um, even before COVID-19. And I think we're seeing that continue. Just yesterday, there were reports about a grant to a very distinguished principal investigator, someone named Peter Dachek, who is the head of an organization called EcoHealth Alliance, which is really focused on what's called zoonotic disease, diseases that, that um, evolve in animal populations, but sometimes jump into humans and can cause very serious infectious disease outbreaks. And almost all of the emerging infectious disease um, threats that have emerged in the last couple of decades have been zoonoses and, and coronavirus um, and COVID-19 is certainly a profound example of that. And he had been working with the Wuhan laboratory, trying to better understand um, different strains of coronavirus that can be found in, in bats in particular, but also trying to understand the different reservoirs. And um, that's really important work that benefits us all. And to just abruptly stop it that way um, without any clear indication of any any um, you know wrongdoing uh, you know I think is is setting back the field and um, and damaging important collaborative research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. I do think 
the issue of the zoonotic diseases and the research on that is an important one for, you know, how are we going to avoid the next pandemic? And, um, you know, I think it's a, a, the, a question I would ask to both of you is what should we be doing to protect, prevent the next zoonotic-driven uh, pandemic from emerging from a live animal market or elsewhere? I mean, what this one health idea uh, that's been out there has been basically ignored for the most part of the public health community. The idea that we ought to be really uh, coordinating um, veterinary medicine, human medicine, and uh, you know, uh, looking at uh, the you know what's happening with climate change and uh, the trafficking of. Uh, you know, endangered species, how are these all contributing to the close proximity of people eating, uh, you know, uh, the, exactly the kinds of factors that gave rise to this pandemic. So I'd be curious about, you know, what you think is going on in those areas, both in China, Winnie, and, and globally. Peggy, do you think there's enough attention being put to um, exactly this nexus between people and animals and disease transmission? Well, I don't think that there is enough attention being paid. And I think, you know, uh, that's why the kind of research I was just talking about is so important. And we need to continue uh, to strengthen and extend these kinds of research activities. And the truth is that there will be future pandemics and there will be um, problems of diseases with animal origins um, coming into humans and and unfolding in ways that are not unlike this novel coronavirus, but maybe other viruses. And sadly, we are likely to see more because of the circumstances of the world we live in. You know, for one thing, the more that we degrade the environment, the more that we cut down the natural um, uh, habitats of, of animals and they, they have to move out and come into closer proximity with human populations as they push into what were previously uninhabited by human areas, that, that closer contact is going to produce more opportunities for spread. As we see climate change um, have greater and greater effects, we're going to see new vector spread diseases um, uh, coming into regions that previously didn't, didn't have them. And we're gonna see um, decreases in, in some of the uh, uh, control um, mechanisms that used to exist because of, of um, boundaries between you know, various kinds of environmental reservoirs and, and human societies. And then of course, as we continue to have um, more urbanification, and I don't know what's gonna happen to global travel, um, but, but certainly the increasing global travel and trade that we've witnessed in, in recent times, all those things have contributed to the likelihood of, of more and more uh, serious emerging infectious disease threats and their ability to take hold. Mm -hmm. Winnie, do you have any observations on what's going on in China uh, in, you know, sort of trying to really stem the, uh, you know, the, the 
live animal markets and the other uh, ways in which the close proximity of people and animals and industrial production of livestock and right so uh, again uh, this reminded us of SARS if uh, we remember SARS was also one of his source is um, the civic cats and that are sold in the markets where people actually eat those wild animals um, I, I, I confess that I thought that after SARS, those were banned. Um, so this time when I heard that the government said that it would be banned, I sort of asked myself, I thought it was banned. So, um, so that's probably an issue with enforcement. So definitely on banning the sale of these animals in markets is uh, something that is very high on the policy agenda. But on the question of a broader, when the during under the changing environment, there's no question that the Chinese government is paying a lot of attention to the environment and its effect on people's health. But to what extent, how much they have paid attention to that aspect on infectious disease um, and future possibility of the connection of that that is not on the top agenda mm -hmm. as yet, but hopefully, um, I tend to I tend to see this crisis as a crisis, but also as an a wake up call for researchers and government to pay attention to things that they haven't paid attention to before. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, this would be getting a high agenda attention. Great. Okay, well, I have a question here relating to the supply chain, which I think came up earlier in, um, in uh, certainly in Peggy's comments. So uh, this is from Jody Schuklein, um, and she uh, says, thanks for the discussion. The pandemic has brought to light the importance to have capacity for medical supplies, which triggered governments around the world to say countries want to become more self-reliant and less on China. Some have put in place protective measures to prevent Chinese buyers from acquiring companies and key industries, biotech being part of that. So could you share your thoughts on the consequences of, that the world might face if each country began to pull back on biotech mergers? Um, so um, who wants to take that one? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll start, but I'd love to hear Winnie's thoughts. I mean, this, this is a very serious concern. And frankly, when I arrived as commissioner of the FDA, I was stunned. I had no idea about how complex the supply chains were for the various products that FDA regulated. Um, in fact, when I took the job, one of my regrets was that I'd been working on a lot of global public health issues. And I thought I was sort of going to have to give that up during my tenure as FDA commissioner because FDA is a domestic agency. Our mission is clearly to promote and protect the health of American citizens. But when I got there, I realized that my ability to do that job of promoting and protecting the health of, of Americans within our own borders depended on me taking a truly global view. And it, and it meant, you know, really looking at where all these different products were coming from, what countries they were moving through just to get um, to us, um, and the quality of the regulatory oversight and the manufacturing in those countries, and the vulnerabilities in terms of those supply chains should they get disrupted. And um, you know, this global pandemic has certainly given us a chance 
to, to see that. And what's clear is that not only has it been a challenge with respect to things that are critically needed to respond to COVID-19, from the personal protective equipment, like gloves and masks um, and eye goggles, to some of the drugs needed to take care of patients, shortages in the sedatives and anesthetics needed when you, when you put a patient on a respirator, for example, but also um, real concerns about shortages in some of the other products that we depend on in this country coming in whole or in part um, from China. Also, huge component coming from India as well. You know, the majority, the vast majority of generic drugs used in the United States come from India. And I am very concerned that although the pharmaceutical industry has been uh, deemed an essential industry, um, that with lockdown, should India really become terribly burdened by this disease, which seems likely, there will be, um, you know, significant encroachments on that industry's ability to perform, which can then be reflected in shortages here. So after this is all over, um, I mean, right now, I think most companies have, you know, um, reserve supplies and there are alternative ways to get certain critical drugs. So we haven't had you know, the crisis in terms of, of shortages um, or substandard products that, that used to keep me up at night worrying about, but I think that could still emerge. And certainly the vulnerability has been put into an intense spotlight. And when this is all over, and even now, I think companies big and small are starting to think about how they should be managing supply chains and manufacturing sites, et cetera. My own view is that it's gonna, it's gonna be something that will be talked about a lot, that we'll see some changes, but probably the reality is that you know, we, we do live in a globalized world and there mm -hmm. will still be um, uh, a, a distributed um, medical product supply and, and, and supply of many other important uh, goods as well. Yeah. Winnie, do you have some perspectives on that from the China side? Um, not really. I just, uh, I agree with everything that Peggy said. Um, <laughs> I think on the one hand, I mean, on the one hand, um, the reliance is uh, make us vulnerable. And likewise, uh, for China, there are other things that they depend on other countries as well. But this is just a globally interdependent world. And, and I think... I, uh, uh, things quiet down when we seek the sort of new normal of the global healthcare system. This will be one of the critical area to be studied very um, carefully. And and of course, China is uh, ex exporting lots of um, um, medically related equipment. And then that goes back to a point that Peggy mentioned much earlier. Is I think standards are still very important that um, um, in, in addition to the global dependence of the volume and, um, and that these should be examined in a very careful way. Mm -hmm. Well, we have many more questions and I'll just take one very final one for a quick 
one-minute response before we finish up. We've had two questions that have to do with Chinese traditional medicine, which has been used very effectively as co-therapy uh, with Western medicine um, for both SARS and for COVID-19 um, as complementary me medicine. And the question from Catherine Huang at Williams College and Wei, Wei Chun Gu from uh, WGU Consulting really has to do with how will geo has is geopolitics getting in the way of best practice in terms of things like the use of Chinese traditional medicine as complementary medicine. Um, any final thoughts on that one, Winnie? <laughs> or Peggy? <laughs> Chinese medicine is always a very difficult question because I think from experience, they are effective in certain things. Um, but science base is still so weak. Um, so it becomes very difficult to ascertain which ones are really um, supported with evidence, which ones are not. And even to the extent that some of them may be just a placebo effects. I know that in China right now, Chinese medicine is being um, uh, promulgated as an effective treatment or at least reducing symptoms for COVID-19. And I see people rushing to buy different kinds of Chinese medicine. But having worked in China for so many years, I'm also seeing that um, that's the positive side, but on a negative side, I'm also seeing Chinese medicine being used excessively and to the extent of abuse. And I think we, we, should, we, should, we should have a good evidence to assess it before we think about whether it is the geopolitics barrier of using it. Good. Well, you really gave the exact answer I would have given as a former FDA commissioner, whether <laughs> traditional Chinese medicine or modern biopharma products, we really do need to study them to see what works and what doesn't for whom. And uh, even in a terrible devastating uh, disease like COVID-19 for those who become seriously ill, it is a mistake to believe that anything is better than nothing. Um, we really need to know so we can serve those patients and other patients that will follow. Yeah, let's hear it for the scientific method. <laughs> uh, so I really want to thank you both for just a fabulous discussion today. Um, we couldn't be luckier than to have two real experts on all the issues that you work on. And I think it's really enhanced uh, the, the discussion uh, of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic to bring in such a science and strong China-based uh, knowledge into the conversation. So let me thank you both and thank all our participants. Sorry we didn't get to all of your questions. Um, I, I, I think the committee will pro can provide them offline to our speakers and maybe we can provide some answers to you uh, offline. I don't want to make a promise, but <laughs> anyway, thanks very much and thanks to everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.